Paul and Shane. Thank you for Paul and 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 Jeff and and uh, Shane and and I just ask you to be with Keith as as he's working this morning. Mike as he's celebrating his anniversary. Um, twenty five years, Lord. Ain't a lot of people that's doing that now. So I just thank you for the the faithfulness they they've had to each other. I just ask you to bless them and uh, show them that um, while they went through a lot of challenges in twenty five years. Um, the best could be yet to come, that they can take what they've learned about each other over that period of time, and they can do a new thing, Lord. And so I ask you, um, as some of their kids are leaving the house and getting married, Lord, I ask you to help them transition into something that's that's right for them and that they can see that, that they, uh, they have even greater purpose um, yet to come. And so, Lord, I just ask you to be with us as we look at your word, as we look at justice, um, as we intertwine justice and mercy together, and we see what you did on the cross as far as paying for our sins and being qualified to be the perfect lamb of God. Lord, I just ask you that you um, stir in our heart appreciation for the gospel, that um, you bring us back to our first love, and that we realize that in the most simplest manner, you've paid it all, you've done it all. And, um, and based on that foundation, we have a glorious future, regardless of what this world says, regardless of what our sin says, regardless of what the devil uses and says, we've got hope in you. And um, that fundamental hope is the foundation that we build our lives on, Lord. And we just ask you that you help us to understand that in a real way, that you anchor it into our soul, that we can't forget it, and that we do be those types of people that come back to our first love and come back to a grateful heart and appreciation for what we find, the mercy we find, the justice we find in the cross. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, so let me get a feel, just a survey feel of, of where we're at. So I know what I need to accomplish this morning um, was, was everybody able to listen to the uh, the audio on God's just judgment. I texted out, but it's um, Psalms 51 um, verses four through five. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Any opening thoughts? Was there any things that stood out that you liked or disagreed with or, or just overall thought of what was it a waste of your time? Was it, did it kind of enlighten you? What, what would your opening thought from the audio be? I would say for me, oh, wait, the, go ahead, Paul. I was just always saying, saying, I like to hear what he had to say about when he said, um, against you and only you I have sinned, because that always kind of stood out to me is like, well, yeah, I guess it's, you know, true sin is really only against God because, it, you know, his law. But I always used to think kind of what he went into a little bit about, yeah, I mean, can you say he sinned against Uriah? He sinned against, you know, Bathsheba. He sinned against. So that kind of helped, helped kind of put some of that in place for me. Um, so prior, you was kind of like, that's odd. And then him. Right, thinking. exactly. I mean, I mean, obviously it's, it's about God, but I just really didn't know how to, you know, I like to hear his perspective on, on um, what those verses meant. Uh, meant through his eyes and that, that was kind of a good perspective to hear and kind of wrap, wrap yourself around that a little bit. Yeah. What you thought, Shane? On the same lines, I, I, you know, the very, you said the very definition of sin is transgression against God. So in, in saying that, that, you know, we, 
always kind of looked at it. You, you could sin against somebody. I mean, obviously God and them, they're, they're involved, but really the sin is not against them. The wrong, they've been wrong, but it's not necessarily sin. And I think he, he, he clarified that a little bit. I was listening to it this morning at the end of that little section was, um, you know, kind of a priority system too, that, that sinning against at the, let's see, the horizontal le level is, um, it's just not nowhere near as great as the vertical le level of a horizontal. So I, I think he said in a final analysis was the word he uses that sometimes, but in the final analysis, the sin against God was so great. It didn't even compare to any other things that that's, that was the main chief thing that could be dealt with. You got any thoughts, Jeff? Might be busy. So I'm going to read the text and Jeff. Um, yeah. Hey, sorry. I was, uh, had my hands full. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I like this anytime RC can bring some clarity to some things. I do like the analogy, uh, that he used the, the Watergate scandal and how, you know, uh, repenting is, is more than, uh, just acknowledging that you did wrong, you know, and, and people try to cover that up. Yeah, I did wrong, but you know, I'm not a bad person. Um, but it puts it in perspective whenever you sin against a holy God, it's, um, it's egregious. It's a, it's a, it's a big deal. It's a crime. And so I thought that was helpful. Uh, just knowing that, uh, we should have the right attitude towards repentance. Yeah. Well, so, um, as we unpack it, I'll just take a moment. I'm going to just read. Um, this was kind of three parts, so we'll break down the three parts. But I'm just read them real quick so that we have them um, before us. Um, in in verse, um, let's just let's look back at what we had last time. We'll read the first five verses. But it says, "Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love and according to your abundant mercies." I think another version said, "Your tender mercies," um, and and um, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and sin is ever before me. And so as we look, um, go ahead and I'll get to finish the four verse four and five against you. And you only have a sin and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. So just at a high level, I'm going to hit a few doctrinal topics here. Um, and and as R.C. treats this, this text, he says this is not, you know, we see in the life of David, um, especially in the, in the um, New Testament, we see New Testament writers quoting David, and when they quote him, they're quoting him as as prophesying so at certain points while david's chief role was to be the king of israel at certain points god holy spirit would move in, in him in a way that he would speak things um usually he would speak prophecy to the christ to the messiah in this case he's almost doing the same thing in one sense but he's speaking prophecy to the gospel and the forgiveness of the new covenant that would be fulfilled. So we just come off of Hebrews and we look close at a higher priest, a, a better, a, you know, a better temple, a better sacrifice, all those kind of things, better worship. Um, 
you know, what you're seeing is in the Old Testament context, David being inspired by the Holy Spirit to communicate something in the Old Testament that would actually, in, in, in more ways than, than not, it, it's a clear communication of what the New Testament is, is getting to. So almost as if the New Testament talks on and on and on about the New Covenant um, promises and, 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 and forgiveness um, through the New Covenant. It talked on and on and on about it. And it's almost like in, in just a few verses here, David, not even knowing anything about that at that time, just nails it, just like boom, summarizes, catches everything. Here it is. Now, it was too concentrated in the Old Testament, plus they didn't have the surrounding events to, um, to recognize it um, and its value. But now as New Testament believers that have really experienced and um, seen the fulfillment and the reality of the New Covenant um, promises ushered in, we can go back and look and say, David wasn't just talking crazy. He was actually nailing it. And then only can a man do that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this Psalms comes to us um, almost like Mike asked the question in Hebrews about it being delivered by angels. And in some way, you can see this sense because there's no way David did this. Just one day woke up and say, hey, I think I have a brilliant moment, you know, um, God was spirit was working in this. And so as you unpack this, he says, according to your start, the three points last week, according to our four points, according to your steadfast love and according to your abundant mercies, um, he was looking at the covenant that he had. So he was appealing from a legal sense, not on his future intentions to do better, but on the covenant that God had made um, with him. Um, and he, he talks about tender mercies. He, he begins to paint the picture of that God's, if, if there was a merciful comp competition, God would win every time. And he says, you know, like later on when he does the consensus and he gets in another little situation like this in Gad and he gives him three choices, you know, this, this or that. And there was two things in his decision is one, he figured that he had did the problem. He didn't want other pay people to pay for it. But also, he didn't want to put his hands in the people because he knew God's mercies was more tender than, than those. And so he, he's appealing and working through that. But the other thing was that he had the guilt was bothering him so much that it was paralyzing him that he begged God to wash him white as snow. Now, that, that triggers into what we're dealing with today because God... If he just forgives someone just willy-nilly, if that's a word, I, I think it's a word, but, but if he just carelessly forgives someone, then his justice comes into question. So we've seen the plea for mercy, and we've seen that God is merciful. But now today we look at how does he show tender mercies and wash someone's sins clean without them necessarily doing something and still be just and that answers you know of course through the cross so y'all talked a few uh, a few about this first part of uh, this but um the three things i looked at is i just i kind of put these three three words only god meaning only god he sinned that's our chief sin and then i put just and justifier god at the cross shows himself to be the one that justifies us, but he's still just in the way he justifies. He don't lose his justice by justifying us. 
And then the last thing is there brings up the topic of original sin. Now, people are shady about original sin. Some people, uh, you know, the term total depravity comes up and, and, and things of that nature. But people on a scale from zero to 10 have an opinion about um, sin. Um, some people's thought is that people are basically good and they just need more information. Well, when we say more information or better information, we're not necessarily talking about the grace of God or relationship with God or anything like that. We're just educating people. And they would, in their, in their core of their being, they want to do right. They just don't know how to do right. Um, I would say the gospel speaks directly against that, that at the core of our being, we do not want to do right. And unless God does a work in the core of our being, we'll never want to do right. And so our hope of doing right, if there is a such a thing, first of all, has to we got to have a heart transplant, uh, uh, engine remake over. We, we have to, as the Holy Spirit inspired David to write this psalm, we have to have um, the Holy Spirit write God's law in our hearts and give us new desires so that we would want to fulfill them. So Anyway, so those are the kind of three things that we'll look at. Those are the, the big picture um, theological points of view. So let me read some of these topics and try to uh, jog a few thoughts on the first part. The first part, um, I just called it A and B of Psalm 51 and 4, A being against you only I, I have sinned, which is something we talked about. But, but he, he comes back to what he talked about last week and done what is evil in your sight. I'm sure you've all been a Christian long enough where you've come to that point where um, you've realized that your chief problem is with God and that you, you just you confess I've done evil um, in your sight. So just a few bullet points here. Um, David had not only sinned against God with transgressions, but many others were cons consequentially affected by his witness. And I wrote a few of the names down, Bathsheba. Um, you know, I love the way he kind of painted that, that, you know, to some degree, I'm sure David said, hey, come to my house. We're just going to eat, you know, or something like that. So, so he enticed and lured her into this activity. Um, um, his wives, his kids, Uriah, Uriah's family, um, you know, his soldiers, all of those, we could make a case that he was wrong, wrong, wrong. But at the end of the day, David said, if I don't get right with God, I'm essentially going to keep on doing wrong. Um, and then he just says, in the Old Testament, the king is accountable for God to rule under the king's law, and it's supposed to manifest the righteous reign of God. So when we talk about the mediation roles, prophet, priest, and um, king, um, you know, I love where uh, Paul says, I'm not my own. I've been bought at a cost by the precious blood of Christ. Um, th this kind of concept happens when God calls you to be a prophet for his people or a king for his people or a priest for his people. Um, there's, there's surely a high, higher standard and you can't play around like a common person with um, how you, how you act and respond around sin. And I was thinking about too, like, I think we, in reality as a nation are facing a um as as our culture has turned their their back on god as our leaders have turned their back on god i don't think global warming is our greatest problem i think um god taking his his hand of common grace and favor off of us because he sees 
an obstinate people. I think that's more our problem. And so when you read the book of Kings, you had Solomon, I mean, you had um, Saul, David, and Solomon, and they call that the United Kingdom. And then you had about 19 kings on each side in the divided kingdom, Israel and Judah. But as you read that, you see them going through these cycles of uh, a pretty good king, an okay king, and a and a and a, a terrible king. But you see how the whole nation perishes when a bad king is in charge. So it gives this picture that um, when you've been called by God to lead His nation, and you um, and you make a bad example or whatever, that that there's there's cons- there's severe consequences. Um, but um, people put their trust in their king so that the king. Sh- should not do anything that violates their trust. It is not true that David's sin was only a private violation of God because he also violated other people as well. And if you heard in the audio, there was a situation where a woman got an adulterous fair and RC said he had to counsel like 16 people. You know, a lot of times people, when they get into a divorce or something like that, they think that's their business. Um, so I'll just stop with that. What, what thoughts y'all have on, on those, those kind of offense things that we dove in a little bit? I even thought it was interesting when he talked about, I mean, I, I know RC's, um, I guess, Calvinist lean, or, but he talked about even uh, with people that uh, talked to him, I guess, about election. And uh, he talked about how it's, you know, you know just to even complain about, um, consequences in our lives are in a sense, you know, blaspheming a, a holy God because, you know, he's hundred percent holy and just and righteous. And so when we complain about the situations we're in, um, I don't know if y'all remember the part when he was talking about that on the audio, but I thought that was kind of interesting too, that, um, you know, every judgment, like when, when we say, oh, that's, you know, shake our fist or get angry at God because of a situation in our family and or loved one and, and uh, you know, say in a sense it's not fair that that's actually sinning in itself, just not trusting the, the justice and righteousness of God's decisions. And I had read a book uh, real recently. I've, I've read pretty much all of um, Lee Strobel's stuff, and he put out a new one. And I just saw it in a little thrift store for little or nothing, but it's a, he did case for Christ, case for creation, all that. And this one was a case for miracles. So I said, well, I don't know if it's going to be any good, but I'll go ahead and get it. But actually when he, he talks to people that are real strong in their faith and believe in miracles and then people that are skeptical and even people that are atheists in different chapters of the book. And he talked, uh, I wish I had, I have to send you out maybe the thing, but it was one of the Christians he talked to that uh, um, has studied miracles, but, has a um, a wife that's basically dying of a, a chronic, terrible, debilitating illness, and he, he's prayed his whole life, you know, for years, for healing for his own wife, and and nothing's ever happened. But then he's studied and seen all these miracles going on other places, and so he he talks. He 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 has a couple of um part of his dialogue in there. It's pretty cool and talking about faith that um. Faith isn't so much um, us pleading before God our case and 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 wanting wanting an answer in a sense almost manipulating God, but true faith is being able to accept the will of God, uh, whatever He decides to do, and, and and be at peace with that. So that's kind of paraphrasing, you know, one of the parts that He said. But it it, it was it was pretty cool that you know you 
you trust the righteousness of, and justice of a holy God, whether on a, on our earthly level, everything seems to be falling in place the way we want it to or not, you know, and, and, and that's what he, and he was saying, that's actually, I think it was a she, but saying that's uh, to her what, what true faith really is. Yeah. Well, I was thinking about this since you brought Calvinism up. I was thinking about this, like Calvinism gets the term sort of like, you know, and I think, I think you were in that too, Paul. I, is it, I, weren't you in Amway? Didn't we meet at some point? Mm, yeah, that's what we met. Yeah. Um, so you was under Ivan and David and all that. Um, but anyway, so, um, but I was thinking about how Amway got a bad name and, 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 you know, culture has kind of done that with, with Calvinists. But I was thinking about this this morning. Um, one of the things that I've come back and back, back to again and again and again with the gospel and just been convicted about is that we shouldn't be sharing. I mean, we shouldn't be selling the gospel, but sharing the gospel. When I look over the last 20 to 30 years, I think one of the greatest eras we've made is us becoming professional salesmen of the gospel. And what happens is we kind of sell a bullet bill of goods that doesn't meet, um, meet um, the, the, what we were trying to sell, what we profess to be the reality of, of what was going to happen. And the reason being is because we make promises that are actually not scriptural when we're selling the gospel. And we justify the fact that that's okay because everybody needs to confess Christ as Lord. Well, there's a way that they confess Christ as the Lord. And, and so I, I've over the years transitioned and I stand firmly on this now that our, our job is if you're selling the gospel, you're wrong. If you're sharing it, you're right. You know, I just, I'm pretty firm about that. But, but when you share, when you share the gospel, it's like giving seeds of what scripture says. And then the Holy spirit, just like he worked in David's life to bring about this Psalm, the Holy spirit makes those those seeds fit for that person in the way it wants to we're not smart enough to do that and um so what happens is sometimes in our compassion of to see people get saved we kind of try to give cliff notes in our sales pitch and and people never really get their eyes open their ears open their heart changed they never really get there and so we're playing fake christianity if that's the way we, we come about it. And, and I think that salesmanship has made the church so weak that we find ourselves in the position we're at. If we would have just done, you know, over the last 20 years and, you know, and even in some cases over the last 200 years, if we would have just did what the reformers did, study the scriptures, figure out what they say and live out what they say, we'd be way better off, you know? Um, but back to you, I mentioned Calvinism as what I've learned by listening to Calvinist preachers is that one concept is uh, while some of the truths are hard to process because of the type of teaching and culture we've had, they're never trying to sell something. They're trying to share something. And so sometimes we have a, a, a distrust as people because we've been hoodwinked by Amway salesmen or whatever, but like when we were just on vacation, we we sat through a timeshare. And at the end of the day, they tell you all these these awesome things that are happening, but what, what they're really trying to do is recruit you to sell the product. And and sometimes that's the mindset we have in church when we try to we try to sell the gospel. Is we're 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 really trying to get someone 
to say a sinner's prayer, get baptized, and go tell other people to say sinner's prayers and get baptized. And we're into these numbers and these marketing strategies instead of actually looking at people as a human being. And even further than that, looking at scripture as the master key to it all and the gospel as the master key of it all to Jesus and the work of the cross as it all. And, 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 and regardless of whatever you call Calvinist, Presbyterian, Baptist, Catholic, whatever, at the end of the day, those are the kind of things that we got to get on board is that, that, that we look at scripture enough that, that it means something that it's that, that like, like some preaching of today for them to use five verses rightly in their message is almost non-existent but like like would it be okay if we use 15 verses every week you know like could we actually read a few more verses and i i think it says something about our culture the fact that we're not at a place with our word that we can do that um i just was going through um i think it was um act 17 last wednesday and in act 17 He's, he's in Thessalonica, and then he moves to Bereans. And, and it says in Thessalonica that he reasoned it with them in the synagogue and the scriptures that, that Jesus was the Christ. But then when he went to Berean and he told them about it, he said they looked at the scriptures to see that what he said was true. So both cases, they were going to the scriptures, but the Bereans had, had become a people that put their trust in the word of God, that regardless of what anyone said, if it didn't line up with the word of God, they weren't going to move, you know, forward with it. So anyway, I guess I got on a tangent there, but, but I don't know. I just, I, I, I'm not trying to in any way sell Calvinism or anything. I'm, I'm just trying to say, um, you know, that, that deal of us, as we, as we approach scripture, like even when we handle scripture, sometimes we get, um, bought into a philosophy that we believe that we want to force everyone to believe like us. I mean, let the scripture, let the gospel, let Christ, the Holy spirit himself work on people, be a seed sower, be a water, but don't try to force the seed to grow. Um, yes, we love certain people. We, we don't want them to die and go to hell. Um, but, but we can't control that, you know, like I, I thought about something the other day that I, I keep going back to, and I'll just tell you, is if, and, and go back to like Acts 5 where Ananias and Sapphira and they died because they lied to the Holy Spirit, is if I ask you right now to stop breathing or to just stop your heart, you know, could you do it? You know, and the, and the answer is no. No matter how much you try, no matter how many people we get around and we say, cheer him on, cheer him on. You can do it. You can do it. You just couldn't do it. But you know what? God can do it. And, 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 and that's helpful for me to realize that every beat, when I wake up in the morning, when I slept at night, I wasn't thinking about my heartbeat, but God was making it beat. When I woke up this morning, God was, you know, and, and more than just it beating to keep me alive. God can even beat it in, in the terms of hope, of inspiration. I mean, you can wake up tomorrow and, and just because God is awesome, you could have inspiration and creative cre creativity that you never had before, and it may radically change your life. But God is in control, and we've got to get to that point where we worship, and every time we start thinking 
more of ourself. Like there was, I think the passage where he said, talking about worry. And he said, who of you can add one hair to your head and stuff. We can't stop breathing. We can't stop our heart. We can't really maintain our heart. We can't grow hair. And we need to, we need to know our Lord in enough to know that he is watching over us and he's guiding us in a way that goes beyond our own understanding. You know, I, I got way off in that tangent. I'm sorry. <laughs> And the same way we can't stop our own heart from beating, we can't start our own heart from beating. And so we can't, we can't just wake up one morning and decide to be born again. That's, that's an act of God and, uh, and of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, you talk, going back to what we were talking about, about uh, sin affecting other people. Um, Dennis, I don't remember if it was you or somebody else, maybe the church, I was texting back and forth that Paul Washer clip about, you know, the bride of Christ and that, you know, we're dressing her in a way that she was never intended to be dressed. And there's, you know, he, he said, don't fear for the atheist. Don't fear for the, for the prostitute, but fear for the man of God who um, calls, calls the bride of Christ to take off her pure garments and, you know, put on something she wasn't intended to wear. And, and you, you know, the American church, the, the church in our country is declining because, We've got all these tricks and gimmicks to pull people in uh, and they're not redeemed. They're not born again. And we're even putting them in leadership positions to guide, help God and direct the church almost like we would a, a corporation. Um, and, uh, you know, it's you, you may get a ton of people in, but it's the people you're getting in aren't even saved. And so you, I think you kind of see some fruits of that of the church when you see whole denominations just considering going blatantly against the word of God and some of the things they believe. Yeah. And like to give some framework with that, and I've been studying, I'm actually going through the bondage of will real slow right now. And, um, and it's a, it's, it really makes you think, I mean, like putting you back in college, it's, it's, a, it's just a hard read, but, but one thing that no one can criticize Luther in that book is the depth of his his philosophy and his logic basically he's thinking through an issue at every perspective at every angle and um it's just really profound it it, it, it if anything regardless of how you come out with the conclusion of bondage of the will it'll make you think more deeply more thorough like his opponent he's actually saying like really did you think about that and he he does it um how would i say with I can't right say the right boat. It's almost funny how 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 he uses poetry and cleverness to politely tell this guy, like, really, you're a scholar, and these are the arguments you're making. But but he um, dives through that. But what I wanted to say is, um, we've heard the t- terminology, and I, I I know it's not spelled out in scripture, but we've heard the ideas of wolves coming in Acts twenty to. Um, to attack the sheep when Paul leaves. And we've heard like in Matthew 25, the separating of the sheeps and the goats. And then I've referred back in the past of, um, of C.S. Lewis um, screw tape letters, how it's a short part in the beginning where it deals with um, people getting saved. But then after people get saved, the bill, the book turns to, to how the demonic wor- world kind of re- interacts with saved people. And, and it's insightful on this aspect is that what the devil can do in the church is um, kind of that concept of if you throw a person in boiling water, 
they'll jump out real quick. But if you turn the water up slowly, they, they won't notice and it'll cook them alive. Well, the devil does it there in the, in the um, public square, the devil brings um, wolves after Christians, but in the church realm, he brings goats after Christians and what goats, because they're not born again. And I, I would encourage you to read on um, first Corinthians chapter two, six through 16. And it talks about how the, the, the capital S spirit is in God. And that man has a little S spirit, but when we get saved, God puts the capital S spirit in us. And he gives a definition that the spirit knows the thoughts of a man, that no one knows the thoughts of a man, but a man's spirit. And he says in the same way, the capital S spirit knows the thoughts of God. And the only way God can help us understand what he's got planned for us is he puts the capital S spirit in us. And that now that we're born again and we're in Christ, we understand the wisdom of God. Prior to that, we could not understand it because it was beyond our little S spirit. Well, my point being is what a goat is, is someone that doesn't want to die and go to hell. They want to see moral integrity be raised in the community and maybe in families. And so they're on board with a lot of what the church does but they do not have capital S spirit in them. So they can't understand the priority structure of Christ. So if we come back to our text where, where David says, oh, you alone I've sinned. And we're talking about that as a priority. It's not as if all the other things, apologizing to Bathsheba and Uriah and his family, you know, is, is not, is not important. It's just not as important of the main thing of getting that stinking thinking, that rotten core inside of you addressed. And so, so um, what you will never find in a church that has goat leadership is the gospel. You know, you, you won't see the gospel weakly exalted. You won't see scripture exalted. You won't hear about Christ after every breath. You know, if you just notice when people start saying, whether it's the worship or they're talking when they start saying, well, I did this and I did that. And when I did that and I did that, like, like, stop that. Like you must decrease. He must increase. It should be about. And when Jesus did this and when Jesus did that, like, stop using your name, you know, stop talking about your philosophies and start talking about the gospel. And I know we're wasting all our time, but the next point here about God being the just and the justifier and doing that, on the cross, if you're going to sin this afternoon, Christ paid for that sin already. For those sins you've already done, he's paid for that, and he's paid for it. Like, I thought about that. It was so moving to me in the passion of Christ, and this was a scene that that sucked to me. I, I know this might not be true, but it's it's it, it points to what we're talking about here. Is so they did the four, the 39 lashes or whatever, and they had the glass in the in the things. And so when they would hit it, it would grab skin and rip it off. And and scripture does say that he was beyond recognition on the cross as a human being. But all those people that were saying, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas, you know, crucify him. And then Pilate goes and he does that. It was because they went out and got him in the night, gave him an unfair trial and said he was a troublemaker and brought him to Pilate. It was those people were the reason that he was getting beat like that. And in the way Mel Gibson made the show, and I counted it, if you ever go back, see if I'm right, 
after 13 stripes of the, of the whip, the religious leaders couldn't look at it anymore and they walked away. And when I watched that show, I rose up and I said, I wanted to reach in the screen and grab their face and say, no, you started this, you caused this, you're going to watch everything that you've, you've created. And, and like my point being is like, we don't realize Jesus took the wrath of God for our sin. And then not even a little bit, not even an iota or a peccadillo was he sinful. He was a hundred percent qualified and he took the wrath for us. And that is the essence of how God can be the just and the justifier. He, 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 he did the requirement of the law and on your behalf, he took your, your punishment. Um, so I'm going to just shut up with that. Any thoughts on that? Am I misrepresenting the gospel or? Not all at once. I must have really misrepresented. That's hard. That's hard to follow. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, all I can say is amen to that. I, I, I think that's, uh, I think that's perfect. And something, something does uh, rise up in you and says, no, you're, you're going to watch this. You're, you're the reason that he's on the cross, but in truth be told, um, you know, we, we'd be in that same position back then. You know, we'd, we'd be the ones that were yelling, crucifying. Yeah. But, but when we think, when you interact with someone that, you know, is, is of the belief that you can lose your salvation and, and, you know, and, and they make their arguments, but, but I, I rarely find, them understanding the mercy that God's shown them or the, or the, you know, like it's, is as if I've said it this way before, when Christ said it is finished, what was finished. And, and I'll go back to that scale of one to 10, you know, some people, what they think was finished is like a two, like, well, he made a way. So if I feel like it one day, I'll get my insurance policy because he made a way and, and he, he made an insurance policy, but no, what was finished was he took, what God already knew that you, the sin that you've already done, that you're presently doing, that your future going to do, God already knew all that. However, he knows that, you know, I, I don't know that we can explain it, but he already knew that. And, and, and he poured the wrath for that sin out on Christ on the cross. So when it was finished, it was finished, you know, it wasn't, it's not a, a willy nilly thing that nothing was really finished. And, and it's a lack of understanding that, that, that puts us to the point that like, because what we think is that if Christ made a way, but then we got to finish all this other stuff, then we can lose our salvation because it's contingent on what we still yet do. And, 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 and it, it undervalues the reality of the capital S spirit entering into us. I mean, there's, there's hints to the picture. Jesus is dead in a tomb. And you know what brought him back to life? You know, in my opinion, if I, I'll speculate, it's capital S spirit. The resurrection is all about capital S spirit showing up on the scene. 
later on at Pentecost, he shows up on the scene and empowers those crazy 12 disciples to, 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 to turn the world upside down, Acts 17, 6, you know, and, and to cause public enemy number one, Paul, and Acts 9 to, um, to, 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 to defend the faith and to, to risk his life for it uh, or to give his life for it. But, but when we look at baptism, we're, we're told to surrender all, to die to ourselves. It's not me that lives, but Christ that lives in me. And we get new life, capital S, spirit life, with new hopes and new dreams and new desires. And, and our eyes are open, our ears are heart. And, and it's in that work that is a confirmation that we've been adopted by God, that we're a children of God, that we're no longer servants, but we're sons and heirs of Christ. Um, anyway, we just, I'm rambling now. Um, it's one of the scriptures uh, in uh, one of the gospels and it talks about uh, when Jesus was traveling and it says, and uh, I'll paraphrase it, that the spirit was, was available or willing that day to work. And so many miracles were performed. And it talks about when he went to Nazareth, you know, to Nazareth, his hometown, and it doesn't mention the spirit there. It talks more about, uh, you know, Jesus says uh, faith wasn't strong there, but, um, but yeah, I think pretty much, you know, everything Jesus did in his, the human part of Jesus was dependent on the Holy Spirit, you know, for everything he did. I agree with that. I think that's scriptural. So um, we got 10 minutes, but anybody got anything? I don't know if you're looking at the outline, but anything on the just and justifier, that second section where he says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Um, that's the scripture. Um, a couple points that he made was um, in the drama of the cross and in the drama of redemption, God remained both just and justifier. God never compromised his justice or righteousness, but instead released his full wrath against Christ on the cross to fully pay the penalty for his people's sins. God did not bend the rules nor, nor grade Jesus on a curve and require, he required perfect per per perfection so that his law and justice may be maintained in the cross both justice and mercy are displayed and if the strict rule of god's justice were applied everyone would perish no one stands at the judgment seat of god and cries that is not fair but every tongue is stopped and reduced to silence as it is futile to protest in repentance there exists a broken and contrite heart that comes from an authentic godly sorrow that acknowledges guilt before God. Not only are we guilty and confess our transgressions by pleading for his mercy and pardon, but we acknowledge that he has every right to punish us. It is an egregious sin to blaspheme God by accusing him of being unjust. David realized that God does not owe him anything and his only hope in life and death is in the mercy of and grace of God. Was that all true? <laughs> all true. <laughs> well, um, I know, does anybody have, I, I know he, he's got this last sentence, um, you know, about original sin. 
uh, or the last section. Behold, I was bought, brought forth in, in iniquity and in sin, my mother conceived me. As I listen to people talk about original sins, I think um, sometimes people have never defined it or really seen the, the gravity of, of the impact it has on the Christian life. Um, so it seems like it's one of the, the issues that sort of people are uneducated on. Um, but he, he, just a few points he has, has here is David is, appeal, is appealing to the original sin and that he was conceived with a corrupt sin nature in a fallen state spiritually before he was born. David does not blame God for his sin or appeal to original sin to minimize his guilt, but confess guilt for the circumstances of his conception. It is perfectly just for God to judge David's sinful condition. He was conceived in sin and born in sin because that David fell in Adam. Children of Adam can never say it is only because of Adam or because of God that they are sinners. God holds us guilty and accountable for what our perfect representative did in behalf of Garden of Eden. David is confessing his accountability not only for the actual sin, but only the original, but but also his original sin or his fallen condition out of what the actual sin emerged. We are not sinners because we sin, but rather we are sin. We've sinned because we are sinners. Um, we need not. We need to confess our guilt not only for our actions, but for that sin nature that we all have out of which our sin flows. The fruit is corrupt because the tree is corrupt and we need to repent not only for bearing corrupt fruit, but for bearing corrupt trees. So as, as the debate of sort of Romans nine addresses this, but as, as the bait of, um, of original sin, um, you know, the, the argument and, and I'm, I may, it may just not be Romans nine. Um, it's probably Romans five that Paul gives the argument that if one comes to the realization that they were born with a desire to sin, do you blame God for that? You know, and, and that's, that's what some could do. That is a possibility. Um, and I was thinking about something the other day about the tree of life. I, I was just sitting in my bed and, and I, I kind of got back into Genesis three and um, I was kind of thinking about a few things, but I was, I was, I kind of just asked the question, where was Christ? in the garden of Eden. Um, and, and, and just studying a few things and all of a sudden, um, the idea that Christ was in the garden of Eden was, um, you have, or, or say it like this, you have the new covenant promises and the old covenant promises and the new covenant promises are hinged around the cross of Jesus Christ. The old covenant promises are hinged around Mount, Mount Sinai and the law of Moses. Well, if you look at the Garden of Eden, you can play with a few thoughts there about what all is going on there. And you can see that the uh, that Mount Sinai was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because that was the purpose of the giving of the law was to give a framework of people which would know what was right and what was wrong. But but I would say that the tree of life was the cross. It was Christ. Um, because what Christ came to do on the cross is give us life to set us free from death. Not so much a set of rules to follow, but a, but a, but a dealing with the original sin nature and to, to, to change it, to, to be born again. And so what, what, what 
what Paul speaks about in Romans is he says that that where there is no law, so specifically in Romans 7, where he said, you know, before the law said, do not covet it, I was free from coveting. But when the law said, do not covet it, I was drawn to, to want to covet, you know, essentially everything. And so you see that drama playing out in the garden also. You see, um, you know, it, it was sort of like God said, don't eat of the tree. But who brought that into a little bit more realization was the serpent. Did God really say? And as he began to taunt and tempt them and they started to deal with that question, you see the work of the law to to dive in and to the core of a person and see where they are at. And sometimes I, I think in dispensational, they call that the, the, the I think it's called the stage of innocence. But I just want to use that word. There was a child. A, 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 an immature innocence that was there with Adam and Eve in the garden. They had not been tested yet. Um, they had, they had not known. And, and it, it paints that picture. They were naked and unashamed. Who do you know that's naked and unashamed? Little kids, right? They jump out of the bathtub as a little baby and they're running naked down the hall. You know, they're naked and unashamed. And, and that's the state that they were, were at. But as the, as the law came into place the knowledge of tree and evil or sinai at a bigger picture it began to change and expose the sin nature and the corruption of people but this would be the point that i would make that i thought is worth taking away from the garden of eden is at the time of adam and eve they were sinless in a sense but they couldn't handle the test and and the whole purpose of God was to move his people to a place that they could handle the test. And, you know, it addresses there in Genesis that they, they can't eat of the tree of life because at the state that they're in, that would be terrible if they found eternal life where they're at. So he's like, I've got to do a work in them before they can, they can embrace the tree of life um, and eat from it. So anyway, um, Back, back to original sin, I've, I've learned to embrace it a little bit more. Like it's a very immature, shallow um, way of saying, well, if God wouldn't have put that bad engine block in me, that bad heart, I wouldn't sin. Um, or I would have done better than Adam and Eve. Um, if, if it would have been me, I, I would have I would have not ate the, of that tree, you know, whatever. But but look at it like this, because I, I've said it before. The cross was not plan B. It was the original plan. So whatever happened in the garden was to prepare a people that are, are, are ready to embrace the cross. Like it was to create a need for the cross to embrace. And so it was never plan B for God to, to accomplish what he was going to accomplish in the cross. Um, but, but back to like the, um, the original sin, the original sin, if you learn to realize it, it, if, if you didn't have a bad engine block and you didn't need, and you could do this whole thing on your own and you didn't need Christ and the cross and the gospel, then, then, then there, there would, there would no be point. There'd be no point in us meeting this morning and what we're doing. There never like, what's it in first Corinthians 16, where um, Paul deals with the resurrection. He says, if the resurrection is not true, then we're the most to be pitied. And what he's speaking about there 
is, is this life, this tree of life being reignited into the people of God. That, that at, at the fall, we saw a separation, but God has been working throughout all the history that we have recorded in scripture to bridge that gap and to be the just and justifier. So um, anyway, I guess I ran out of time there, but final thoughts? Just, yeah, man, we've talked about for years in, in our studies that, you know, that <clears throat> the first step is, is realizing your utter sinfulness and God's pure holiness. And, that, you know, I, I know that there's times that I find that difficult to do. It's a sense of uh, you know, Western culture, self-righteousness that you know, you're, you're aware of in, in a way, but just trying to grasp truly what you are apart from Christ is not always easy to do for some people. That especially people like me were raised in a Christian family. And um, whereas, you know, somebody that was raised in an atheist family and was in prostitution and a drug addict or prison and things like that, it's such a greater gap when they got saved. I think it's a little bit easier for them to, to grasp that. And I think it's harder sometimes for us to wrap our minds around with it and pe that people were raised in a different way. Um, it, it, in, in a sense, you, you, you think you're not as bad as what we, what you really are. And so I think about that a lot and, and try to talk about that a lot. But um, I can honestly say that there's times when, when uh, it's difficult sometimes for me to, to, to realize how really sinful, you know, if I could see myself through God's eyes apart from him is the only way you could really, I think, grasp that sometimes. Yeah. That makes any sense. Yeah. What you think, Shane? Well, what Paul just said, I think, you know, we talk about, um, he said that the greatest need is the need of Christ. Well, we, when you were talking about earlier, just the, uh, the, the church watering down and selling the gospel, when they, when they do that, that need never, never arises in the person's mind. So they're essentially, whenever you're selling the gospel, you're manipulating the situation, just like how this story started with David and Uriah manipulating the situation. Yeah, he could have, you know, he, in his own mind, he sold it probably as, well, Uriah's out there fighting for his army, his people. Um, you know, this is just part of it. He dies. You know, I'll take care of his wife, manipulating the, the situation and all. And what happens is, you know, fortunately for him, he realized his need and how, how, how he sinned against God. And he fell and, you know, going back to the whole deal, the most important thing was acknowledging and confessing his transgression to God among the, you know, you know, obviously he had uh, human or uh, earthly repercussions for ultimately the sin of the sin against God was the most prevalent. Mm -hmm. yeah i've appreciated the way he paints this picture is that david didn't make excuses and kind of beeline and ran you know straight to god um just in the nature and I, I think in the spirit of of true repentance i mean you know we have times where we make excuses for our sins and and all those kind of things that we do but i think the the, the most beautiful moments is when we just quit wrestling and we surrender and we just say, you know, 
it, it you know, just lay ourselves before the feet of Jesus and just say, here I am, you know, I'm a, I'm a mess. I need you to, 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 to rebuild me. And, um, that, 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 those are such the moments where, you know, it all starts for us, you know, it, we, the front, the foundation is laid, you know, so y'all have liked to study so far We've halfway in four parts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I hope y'all have a, a great day. Um, good seeing y'all this morning and, uh, my brother-in-law, um, just keep them in your, in your prayers. Um, they're, they're thinking maybe his recovery is not coming as fast as, as it was, um, last time. So, um, they, um, uh, 